Can an island economy overcome hurricane devastation to seize the opportunity for energy democracy? Ingrid Vila is an engineer and director of Cambio, a Puerto Rico-based nonprofit. In a coalition called Coremo Sol, We Want Sun, Ingrid works with many other organizations on the island and off to prioritize community-owned local renewable energy. Nearly two years after Hurricane Maria destroyed the island's electrical grid, an influx of federal recovery dollars may provide the catalyst to rebuild the island's economy by reimagining its grid, starting with solar on rooftops and local energy storage. Ingrid and I discuss the enormous opportunity and the pitfalls the island must avoid to seize its chance for energy democracy. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. I'm very excited this week to be speaking with Ingrid Vila, an engineer and president of Cambio, a Puerto Rico-based nonprofit who I met with in March when I had the privilege to travel to Puerto Rico for the Black Start Conference. As many folks know, Puerto Rico was hit by a major hurricane a couple of years ago, has been in the process of rebuilding their energy system, and I have just been fascinated with the way that folks on the island have been looking for the opportunities in this rebuilding project. So Ingrid, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Oh, no, thank you for the opportunity. And it was a great pleasure meeting you in March. I would like to start out with a little background. Um, You know, the intense focus on Puerto Rico's energy system comes out of a disaster, the strike by Hurricane Maria that knocked out power to the entire island back in September 2017. Could you just give people a bit of an overview? Like, what are some of the reasons that the hurricane was so destructive to Puerto Rico's energy system? Um. Well, obviously, you can't underestimate uh, the power of a Category 5 hurricane. So, I mean, uh, just having that uh, uh, go through Puerto Rico, we knew it would have devastating effects. Nonetheless, um, the vulnerability of our energy system uh, was quite exposed after the hurricane vis-a-vis other areas within our our infrastructure. And I think one of the main uh, reasons and, and the ones that have come out after the fact, um, was the abandonment of required investment, for example, in maintenance, repair, and even training of, of workers within PREPA. Um, and that is due in, in great measure to political intervention and corruption, which unfortunately um, have plagued that corporation, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, uh, for many decades. Um, so we have an authority and a corporation, a utility, uh, with a decision-making process that is driven by partisan politics instead of commitment to energy planning um, in the public interest. You have, for example, political appointments um, in technical and operational positions that do not regard necessarily the qualifications of those individuals. Um, also, um, as many of you probably also have, have come to learn, Puerto Rico has been in an economic depression since 2006. Um, and instead of uh, using that, that situation to transform many of the government entities, and in specific the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, um, what was uh, assumed as a strategy to pursue was, were austerity measures. And some of those austerity measures, for example, resulted in severe reduction in labor. Um, so after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, uh, the Puerto Rico Power Authority was incredibly understaffed in order to be able to address the many needs and the urgency of, of the moment. 
Um, and aside from that, I would also include the fact that um, up to Hurricane Maria, I would have to say that little or no consideration was given to climate change and the impact of climate change and the vulnerability that, that uh, climate change imposes on our Caribbean islands. Um, and also the fact that uh, this centralized system that we have uh, with our power authority does not harness uh, the power existing in our communities. Um, and I mean both uh, power that, that is energy related and also power to drive change. So you have this centralized system that had all the responsibility to restore power to be able to respond to the dramatic effect of this Category 5 hurricane. And the people were not active participants, were not engaged, were not part of that response from a government initiative. People did, did take, obviously, initiative at the community levels and were the ones to respond and be able to actually um, comfort and provide some solutions uh, to their communities. But it was not the reaction or it was, it was not the result of an existing structure that is able to harness um, that capacity within our communities and within the entire island. So you are working with, uh, or leading, I should say, Cambio uh, Puerto Rico, which has collaborated with a broad coalition, Coremo Sol, to define what you have called a new energy paradigm for the island. And you know, in your presentation at the Black Start Conference in March, and I just want to mention, we'll link to that on our podcast show page for folks who want to see it, uh, the, to all the presentations uh, are up on the web. Uh, you explained that this new energy paradigm includes a power system transformation. So this gets to what you were just saying about how communities have this power that was was untapped, but that the power system transformation under public ownership, you could have a commitment to 100% renewable energy, you know, through, I, I believe you could describe it as a shared governance model that would be rooted in local ownership and participation. Um, mm -hmm. So I have a, a couple questions about that. You know, who else is part of this, this coalition, Caremo Sol with Cambio? Uh, and then second, what transformations do you see needing to occur to the existing paradigm? As you mentioned, this centralized utility that's been had a lot of political intervention. How do those how do things need to change? Who's with you in this and and what things do we need to see changing to help Puerto Rico be more resilient for uh, potential future hurricanes? Of course. Well, Queremos Sol um, is a multi-sectoral um, proposal and effort um, that we actually started working. Um, I would say probably spring 2018 after the hurricane when uh, government started announcing that um, privatization was a solution to all our energy sector problems. Um, and, and some of the folks uh, who, who have been working in energy, some of the, the organizations, um, professors, uh, folks in, in different sectors, we got together and decided that aside from uh, perhaps raising our voices and saying not necessarily that's the best solution for the island, we decided to get together and put together a proposal, a counter-proposal to what was being discussed. And so uh, within the Caremosol Coalition, we have, for example, uh, the PREPA union workers. Uh, we also have the Association of PREPA Management Employees. Uh, we have the Puerto Rico chapter of the Sierra Club. Um, we have El Puente, we have uh, Environmental Dialogue Committee, which is a local NGO. We also have the Anti-Incineration Coalition. Um, we have uh, UPR professors who were fundamental in terms of providing uh, reports and analysis to, to really have 
a proposal that is set on facts and not just, it's not an aspirational proposal. There's a, a proposal that provides the technical route as well as the financial structure that is needed to engage in, in the transformation towards 100% renewables on the island. Um, we also have IEFA, which is the Institute for Energy, Economic, and Financial Analysis, which is the U.S.-based uh, think tank that has uh, been working in Puerto Rico, I think, since 2015. Um, and we were also able to engage support from Casa Pueblo, which is an, a local NGO based in Adjuntas, who have been quite active for uh, even prior to Maria regarding renewables and has taken a leadership role in terms of getting uh, renewables to our, our central mountainous region. Um, we also have the Green Building Institute supporting our proposal, as well as the Puerto Rico Conservation Trust. Um, so this is a, a wide array of local entities uh, with both energy sector expertise, environmental expertise, as well as communities that have defined and identified that uh, we need to really transform and transcend um, the way that energy has been uh, produced and how energy, the energy sector has been developed on the island. And that is what Queremos Sole is. It's a proposal to not only get to 100% renewables, but it's a different way of getting there. Um, and I think that's where, where the great difference perhaps is uh, with what uh, government has defined in terms of their, their objectives and goals and what we're defining in terms of what our objectives are. Um, and and you were, your second question, which was regarding uh, the transformation that needs to occur. Well, I think um, one of the main things is, is kind of like a, a, a change in the way we approach energy and, and to start understanding energy as a common good and a human right rather than a market commodity, which is still how it's being uh, handled on the island. Um, the privatization model, for example, that is being pursued by government limits the active integration of citizens in the energy sector um, and limits their capacity to enjoy the wealth that it could create. I mean, everything is, is left pretty much to market forces. And instead, Puerto Rico could become a model for bottom-up transformation with an integrated energy focus that could include risk reduction, climate change, health, adaptability, equity, democratization. I mean, it could be a, a, a really a real paradigm change, like I, I mentioned during the CNE presentation and you mentioned earlier, um, in terms of, of uh, steering away from that centralized model into a more distributed model uh, that uh, both provides capacity building and provides wealth distribution. Um, one of the things I found really interesting in the conversations I was having with folks on the island, I, I mean, one thing I definitely want to get to is to talk about some of the recent legislation that has been put forward. And, and you mentioned, you've alluded to that a little bit about this issue around privatization. One of the things I was curious about, though, and, and was hoping that you could talk a little bit about was where the financial capacity comes from to to advance any of these visions, really, but in particular, this this paradigm shift toward you know, local and more democratic. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the island's been in an economic depression for a while. Um, you know, I'll link to a, a piece that I wrote that gives a little background on that. There's some other good uh, background on kind of the kind of uh, colonial history, if you will, of the island and, and how this has kind of been building for a long time. But then you also have the island 
uh, utility, Prepa, is bankrupt right now. And so it is this public entity. It's been managed poorly, but it doesn't have any financial resources. Where would the resources come from to to uh, help with this transformation? What are you seeing as, as opportunities? Yes. Um, well, first of all, we have to take advantage of the fact that um, a considerable amount of federal funding will be coming to Puerto Rico uh, because of uh, Hurricane Maria and particularly to rebuild or to address the energy sector needs. And one of the things that we propose uh, within the Queremos uh, uh, initiative is precisely to use those funds to uh, uh, jumpstart and to, to provide an accelerated integration of renewables with storage on the island. Um, but instead, what um, unfortunately is, is starting to take shape in terms of what government is planning to do with these funds is that we will probably see uh, an excessive deployment of natural gas investment. Um, and that will use up most, if not all, of those federal funds. Um, and aside from, and, and we can perhaps talk a little bit more about this uh, uh, further on, but aside from the, the limitations that this natural gas investment will bring to the island in terms of being able to, to incorporate uh, renewables to a greater extent, extent it will also uh, uh, limit the amount of funding necessary or that could be used for energy sector transformation. Um, and we understand that if uh, we, we were able to, or the government of Puerto Rico were able to present a solid energy plan, it would be feasible to raise a minimum of $1.2 billion a year for the next five years. And that is a combination of federal funding, private sector investment, uh, plus loans, for example, from entities like the Rural Utility Services, also ratepayer funded capital investment, as well as philanthropic investment, which has obviously uh, been an important uh, fact and an important factor in the uh, past uh, year and a half. Um, so initially, there could be funding. The issue is how government is going to be using um, that funding and whether they will be prioritizing renewables or whether they will be um, concentrating on these massive investments in natural gas, which we do not think are necessary um, and would probably lock us in to centralize fossil fuel combustion for 20 years, locking us in both uh, with long-term contracts and locking us in in terms of having to purchase a certain amount of uh, kilowatt hours for fossil centralized fossil fuel generation, which instead could be used for uh, distributed renewable generation. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss a bill some are calling a Puerto Rican Green New Deal, why energy democracy is the right solution, and what listeners can do to help. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. 
Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute to go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. You know, you've mentioned the government a couple of times, and there were a couple of legislators at the Black Start Conference in March, and they were talking about this energy reform law, Bill 1121. It's been covered in the media in a couple of places as, quote, the Puerto Rican Green New Deal. But I'm curious, how well does this law, which has stuff, has language about renewable energy, how how well does that reflect the paradigm transition that Coremo Sol has been asking for versus supporting this potential investment in gas or, or privatization? Well, I think that, that one of the main differences uh, between the, the energy policy bill and Queremos Sol is that um, if you look at and analyze the policy bill, it is actually trying to continue to pursue the old model. I mean, it does have uh, aggressive RPS, and I think, uh, and we do coincide, the Queremos proposal and the policy bill um, coincide in terms of, of the renewable portfolio standards that, that it establishes. Um, but I guess the clarification to be made is that goals are one thing and government policy and action are another. And in this case, uh, we're seeing that they're not going together. Um, and it must be noted that Puerto Rico has adopted in the past renewable energy goals and has never met them because enabling policy and political will have always been absent. And in this case, this is not the exception. Um, so I would say that the bill um, has uh, aspirational RPSs because it's not necessarily backed by the needed policy to ensure that that, that aggressive adoption of renewables actually happens. Um, and it has some uh, non-binding green language um, that actually masks uh, the law's uh, real objectives or results, which will be the use of federal funds, like I mentioned before, to convert to private long-term contracts all existing and new generations who operate with natural gas. And this is a provision that is within the energy policy bill. And I mean, if you're going to be requiring all new centralized generation and all existing generation to operate with dual fuel, you're requiring investment. And one of the fuels needs to be natural gas. You're requiring an incredible amount of investment to go towards that. I mean, it's, it's a requirement. Whereas you don't have such strict requirements with uh, uh, renewable provisions. So this is going to obviously crowd out renewable generation and keep our dependency on fossil fuels. Um, and there, there are several and, and contradictions uh, within the bill, like exposing our already limited agricultural lands and natural resources areas to be used for large-scale uh, uh, PV instead of concentrating on rooftop solar, which is what we promote um, in Queremos Sol, 
Um, also, you have, for example, private contracts that can be excluded from complying with the uh, integrated resource plan dispositions. Um, so you also have to keep in mind that this energy policy bill is, is, uh, is kind of like an uh, uh, output of a privatization bill. So a privatization bill was approved in 2018 in Puerto Rico that required that an energy policy be defined for the island. And this is what this energy policy uh, bill that was uh, signed in the past month is, is the result of. But really what is behind all this is, is pretty much the, the privatization um, of an entity through an obscure process that lacks transparency, it, it lacks benefit-cost analyses, or any real utility transformation, which is what we need. Um, instead, it's just kind of like a change of hands from a public utility to a private utility with minimum uh, a real transformation to drive uh, change. So, you know, I, th I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned, for example, this history of passing energy legislation, renewable energy targets that haven't been met. Um, there's been a lot of tension about, you know, it's a publicly owned utility. And in most places in the United States, there are over 2000 cities that have a publicly owned utility. And, and normally there, the oversight is pretty strong. You have a city council or city government that oversees that and doesn't necessarily meddle in the operation of that utility. It tends to be some, some insulation and some separation from the political management, but it tends to be operated pretty well. You know, municipal utilities, across the United States are generally known for having uh, affordable energy, uh, even compared to privatized counterparts, uh, whereas there is often a lot of conflict and tension in other states about uh, the way that the public regu regulatory commissions, the state oversight of private utilities, uh, is often flawed and, and results in some uh, significant handouts to those utilities uh, at the cost of consumers. So I guess, you know, I, I've always been surprised by privatization being put up as uh, a solution to the challenges here, because what we really have, it sounds like is needed is this, um, you know, is this transparent and, and democratic oversight. Um, so I, I, I'm going to leave that there for a second and just say, you know, one of the things that is clear from the work of Kremo Sola and others is that there's so much evidence that transitioning to renewable energy rather than, for example, lots of gas infrastructure means lower costs, big environmental benefits. Um, you know, what do you see as some of the specific benefits to an energy paradigm that's rooted in, you know, what I call energy democracy, this notion of like local investment, local wealth building? You know, what's better about that than having a centralized utility, whether it's public or private? Well, first of all, um, you must also take into consideration uh, that uh, inequality in Puerto Rico is rampant. Um, so to the extent that people become active participators in generating energy, they can also benefit from the wealth that such an activity generates. And under a centralized system, whether it's a utility or whether it's, uh, 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 I mean, a public utility or whether it's privatized, um, you will not have that wealth redistribution. Um, so in the case of Puerto Rico, uh, when we talk about uh, a distributed energy future, we would be reverting the energy extraction model or the wealth drain where over uh, 
$2 billion lever island in fossil fuel purchase or power purchase agreements nowadays. Well, if we're able to revert that and we're able to, to use those funds to invest in renewables on the island, that's money that, that would stay here. And it would be an important socioeconomic equalizer and provide us with greater and a stronger local economy. Plus, when you talk about distributed energy and having people own their systems and, and provide for their uh, uh, energy demand within their own household or within their own business, uh, we're talking about uh, possibility for improved quality of life under both normal and extreme conditions like the experience with Hurricane Maria. Um, also, reduce health and environmental impacts um, uh, because of fossil fuel uh, emissions and the reduction and elimination of those. Um, obviously, more equal distribution of benefits and burdens. Uh, uh, there are communities in Puerto Rico that have been severely impacted uh, with obviously the operations of fossil fuel generating facilities uh, throughout the island and, and having distributed renewable energy could provide some for some uh, uh, more equal distribution of, of the benefits of that and reduction in the burdens that they have suffered uh, for decades. Um, and obviously, the benefit of capacity building, of shared governance, of, of having uh, more, a more transparent governance structure and, and contracting processes and transactions within the utility and consumers, um, it's an added benefit that, that uh, you would think that it would be kind of like a, a an obvious option for anyone thinking of how to transform the utility, yet it is not the, the obvious option that is being pursued by government. So one, I guess this, is a, this probably have to be my last question, unfortunately, but I, uh, but we'll see in terms of time here. I, I really am curious about, um, in some of the conversations that I had, I met a number of remarkable people. I met uh, Marcel Castro Citerice. I talked to him about kind of his focus on you know distributed solar and storage, and fo and 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 really on some of those more mountainous regions in Puerto Rico, and and how to help them be more resilient. Uh, I met uh, a fellow JI Cruz who's doing some organizing around cooperative ownership. Uh, spoke with somebody who is involved with cooperative finance on the island and one of the questions that i had was and you mentioned uh, the rural utility service as well as a potential source of funds there are you know so you have a, a government-owned utility you have the government trying to sell that utility to a private company you also have an opportunity where generating energy from rooftops or from microgrids or from other renewable you know renewable from renewable resources is often cheaper than the energy that the utility is trying to sell you that comes from dirty sources like like oil or even potentially from gas. And I'm just curious, is there an op opportunity here or a possibility that communities sort of self-organize and provide their own energy? I, I, you know, My understanding is that, for example, the federal government would help back loans to cooperative enterprises uh, anywhere on the island uh, that could help them launch. And, and you could potentially be competing with other, whether it's this public entity or a private one, the centralized utility, it seems like there's a, a, the door would be open to compete with that utility and to simply say, our community can generate its own energy for cheaper than could be provided by PREPA or its successor. Uh, definitely, and, and that is already occurring. Um, we have already communities that have organized and, and have been able to build out their, their uh, renewable systems uh, within the community level, they have relied mainly so far on philanthropic 
uh, funding. But and I think that what you mentioned is the fundamental part is being able to structure the financial products that will enable communities to not only organize, but to make this feasible. Um, and that is one of the areas that we're, we're focusing on in Queremos Sol right now, is to be able to provide or to contribute to uh, the capacity building of cooperative financial co-ops on the island to be able to, to design those financing products that are needed for communities to adopt these at accessible and reasonable prices. Um, CDBG funding, for example, uh, would be a great fit for these types of structures, and Puerto Rico should be receiving a, a considerable, um, um, sorry, a considerable amount of CDBG uh, funding, uh, disaster recovery funding in the upcoming years. So uh, that could be an important leverage tool to, to subsidize and make it more affordable for these types of structures to, to uh, gain ground and to progress within communities and at the community level. So definitely it's going to be, a, that, that is where I guess um, right now the, the most important piece of the puzzle lies is to be able to build out and define what that financial structure could be and to be able to test it. I mean, we already have proof of, proof of concept on the island, and I think everybody's convinced that renewables work. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that was the case prior to Maria, but after Maria, there have been uh, an enormous um, acceptance from the general public in terms of renewables as a possible uh, energy source for the island. Now the issue is to be able to prove that we can establish the financing structures to get to 100% renewables with uh, uh, local funding, with our, our local economic uh, uh, possibilities. Because obviously philanthropic and philanthropy has made um, an important contribution um, after Maria, but we cannot accept philanthropy to just be the only source of, of funding for the transformation that we need. So. Um, definitely co-ops are an alternative, um, and there's uh, quite interest and, and excitement within uh, co-ops in terms of being able to engage and adopt and, and pursue renewable energy distribution within their portfolios. So um, definitely something to, to continue to work on in the upcoming years. So I would like to leave people with a couple things, uh, hoping you can give in briefly one is for folks who listen to this podcast, many of whom are either organizing around clean energy or work in or clean energy policy, is there anything that we could do that would be helpful to Puerto Rico? And then the second question is, what do you think is the most important thing that we can learn from Puerto Rico's experience with Hurricane Maria and this rebuilding effort? Well, in terms of clean energy, actually, our, our most impending looming threat right now um, is a bond restructuring deal that the Fiscal Oversight and Management Board has announced that they has reached with some of the bondholders. And this is a bond deal that will have a severe impact on uh, the rates on the island, but it will also have uh, incredible impact on renewable energy because uh, it will establish pretty much uh, an additional surcharge uh, for 
all generation, regardless of whether you generate it with your own uh, renewable uh, uh, system in your household or whether you use PREPA um, uh, generated electricity. So uh, this could have uh, obviously a severe impact on, on how quickly uh, renewable energy is adopted on the island and and it is something that is uh, pending review um, in the federal district court, but it's something that um, I would urge everyone who's interested in, in renewable energy to take a look at um, and if possible to make an expression in terms of the severe and damaging impact that such a deal would have in, in a, a renewable energy future on the island. Who, Ingrid, who would we make that expression to? If this is something that was of concern to us, would it be our elected federal elected officials that we should contact? Well, you can make it. You can make an expression actually directly, or write a letter, or send an email to uh, Judge Swain. She's the federal district court judge uh, who's an- handling all the Title III cases, which are the bankruptcy court cases uh, for Puerto Rico under the PROMESA Congressional Act. Okay, excellent. Well, we. I will have a link for folks to do that uh, on our show page. Um, what is it that we should learn? What's kind of what would you say is the most important takeaway that folks who are caring about a clean energy future could learn from what has happened in Puerto Rico? Um, I would say that there is incredible power to be harnessed at the community level, um, and that if there is something that we can learn from uh, uh, Hurricane Maria, is that if we are going to be pursuing a transformation of the energy sector, we have to acknowledge the possibility of providing the resources that communities need, that small businesses need to lead the way um, in terms of the transformation. Um, people are very clear in terms of, of what we need to do and where we need to, to go in terms of, of uh, energy sector transformation. Um, and the potential that it could provide the island in terms of um, improved quality of life, in terms of reduction in vulnerability, um, and, and many other um, uh, benefits that, that uh, obviously come along with all of those, uh, is something that, that we need to continue to pursue on the island, but it's something that other communities uh, should look into and try to... Um, see how they can develop and, and maximize their capabilities of organizing and deploying renewables and not just waiting for government to solve things. I mean, um, that was, I think, one of the main lessons that we learned from Hurricane Maria is that people are ready to take action, are ready to solve their own problems. They're not just going to be waiting for government. And energy sector is one of those uh, main and fundamental areas where people are taking action. This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I was speaking with Ingrid Vila of Cambio about the opportunity for Puerto Rico to model energy democracy for the rest of the United States. For more about Ingrid's work with Cambio and Coremo Sol, look for her presentation to the Black Start Conference in March 2019 on our show page. You can also learn more about the underlying challenges and opportunities in Puerto Rico by listening to our podcast with Marcel Castro Citerice, episode 77 or reading my Green Tech Media commentary from October 2017. Both are also linked from the show page. While you're at our website reviewing these other resources, you can also find more than 70 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.